Um, my name is Steve Lexon. Uh, I just retired as curator of archaeology at the University of Colorado Museum of Natural History. After being there for 25, 26 years, something like that. Uh, and right before I retired, I published what I think is my last book in my field, which is Southwest Archaeology. Uh, and the book is titled A Study of Southwest Archaeology. So a lot of that is Chaco Canyon, which um, some folks are and aren't aware of. Can you kind of give a brief overview of the kind of history of the geography and of the anthropology of the place and all of that? Um, the book, The Study of Southwestern Archaeology, uses Chaco as a sort of central example because uh, Chaco is fairly well known. It's a World Heritage Site National Park um, in northwest New Mexico, out in the middle of, of Navajo country. And uh, at about 1100 A.D., 1000 A.D., or current era, uh, to 1100, it was the capital of a region about the size of Indiana uh, that extended well into southern Colorado. Uh, there are Chaco um, secondary sites or county seats or something. Uh, at Mesa Verde and at uh, Chimney Rock near Pagosa Springs, that's a national monument, and a few other places in South uh, Colorado, and then it extends into Arizona. The Chaco's region extends well into Arizona and well into southeastern Utah. What first got you interested in this, uh, in this kind of both geographic region and field of study? You've been in it quite a while now. Yeah. Um, my father was in the Army, and when I was high school age, we spent three years living in Naples, Italy. And every time Aunt Gertrude or somebody would come over and visit, we'd go see Pompeii, and I thought that was pretty interesting. So I went to college. I said I wanted to do that. Uh, the advisor in, in college I went to said, no, you don't want to do that. You want to do anthropology. Uh, you can go dig up stuff in the uh, United States. I think he was perplexed by the fact that I had, uh, had no Latin training in, in high school. Um, and I had no idea knew nothing about anthropology or actually very little about Native Americans in their ancient past in North America. But went that route and uh, eventually worked in southwest New Mexico um, after working a good bit in the Mississippi Valley in the southeast. And um, I remember the first night in southwest New Mexico, it was uh, in January, uh, going outside and I think it's the first time I can remember seeing the Milky Way. I thought this is a place for me. <laughs> Plus, it was you know it was arid. There were like compared to the southeast of the Mississippi Valley, there are not too many bugs and all the snakes you need to worry about. Let you know where the the snakes you need to worry about in the Mississippi Valley. There are several that don't let let, let you know they're coming. And, and it was just you know um, very pleasant, or very attractive is the right word. Landscape, I guess. And so. Um You've been working as an archaeologist for yeah. about 45 years, even more. Yeah. Um, and the field itself has changed quite a lot, actually. Yeah. Um, can you kind of talk about how it's been to be as part of the change, um, both maybe for Chaco Canyon specifically or in general? Yeah, Yeah, I've been doing this for over 45 years, and more like 47, something like that, uh, working in the Southwest. And it's changed quite a bit quite a bit over those decades, uh, which is not a surprise. Well, technically, I mean, there are things we can do today that we didn't even dream of 40 years ago. Um, subject matter uh, at places like Chaco, when I got into the business, uh, people thought that Chaco Canyon, which is this national monument, has half a dozen really, really, really big um, monumental buildings. 
there was a canyon full of little farming villages. And as we learned more and more about that, no, what, what we're looking at there was a city that's like a capital city. One thing that's changed enormously is engagement with Native American people. First 10 years I was in the field, it's quite possible I never even laid eyes on an Indian or a Native American. I was working in southern uh, New Mexico and there were no reservations or anything down there. But after that, yeah, I worked quite a bit with Native American people in very different capacities. Initially, I worked with Navajo guys. And by work, I mean we took turns on the wheelbarrow and we took turns, you know, you do the pick, I'll do the shovel, that kind of field work. And then I worked at the Museum in New Mexico, uh, and those are country people. I mean, they're, you know, they're really good guys. But none of them had gone past high school of that, um, but, you know, really decent fellows. And then I worked at the Museum in New Mexico where I was working with, um, like, Pueblo governors and artists and poets and writers and people who, you know, we had, I had colleagues, Native American colleagues who would miss a meeting because they had to fly to Paris. I mean, it was a whole different group of Native Americans, a real eye-opener. And then more recently, I worked a lot with Native American governments with my museum work. Uh, there's a number of laws around museums and archaeological research um, that since 1990 uh, have brought us together in more um, formal and um, legalistic ways, but it's still really interesting. So that, that's changed enormously over the time that I've been involved as archaeologists listening more to Indians, and Indians being really, many Indians, being very interested in what the archaeologists are doing, as long as we're, once we got past the adversarial stage. Right. There is a certain um, level of uh, neocolonialism uh, in archaeology's past. Uh, I wouldn't say that archaeology is a colonial discipline. I mean, uh, archaeology developed in Europe where we were digging ourselves. Right? We start off that way. When it gets moved with the colonial project, you know, like, then it's part of the colonial project, but so is geology, so is biology, whatever. But, you know, the discipline itself isn't inherently uh, colonial discipline. It's just a study of the past. And how it translates in, in settler colonial situations is interesting politically and ethically. Right. And you were talking about how you started to work more with indigenous populations um, as opposed to working against them. How did that um, kind of play out in understanding more about uh, Chaco Canyon? And in an article with the Sea Boulder today, uh, you mentioned that uh, it's, it kind of was like uh, a, some, some sort of pilgrimage center almost, basically. Well, the, the Park Service take and the, the, the general public take on Chaco is that Chaco was a pilgrimage center, and it was a you know spiritual place, and there's flute music in the background and all that kind of stuff. Um, I got when I was doing archaeology at Chaco, just the archaeology looked like an awful lot like a capital city, uh, which you don't have in modern modern Pueblo people because of the descendants of the people that built Chaco are still around. They're they're in the twenty odd pueblos in the Rio Grande and Hopi and Zuni and Acoma places like that. Uh, modern. Um, Pueblo villages, they don't do that. They don't have capitals, they don't, you know, they don't have regions and all that sort of thing. Um, but I was working at Museum New Mexico on an exhibit, and I remember a couple of gentlemen from uh, two different Pueblos right near Santa Fe, both Tewa Pueblos, I think, said, oh yeah, we know all about Chaco. We don't talk about it because bad things happened there. And that was kind of an eye-opener. That, And, and the more and more this is coming out now that, that, yeah, I mean, Pueblo people, of course they remember Chaco. They haven't talked about it much because bad things happened there, or things that were not... I'm not a public person. What I'm doing is paraphrasing what public people have told me. 
that things happen to Chaco that wouldn't be correct for Pueblo people today, like having a government. You know, well, they have governments, but you know, having a king or having a capital city in a region and all that sort of stuff. That's just not how they live. Um, I mean, after Chaco goes down, and this is Pueblo accounts, and it's also pretty clear from the archaeology that the those people kind of reinvent themselves and say, okay, we tried that. It kind of ended badly because it did. It ended very badly. There's stories about that. Um, and they kind of reinvented themselves to not, you know, to be able to have sizable farming villages, which is what Pueblos are, without having cops and kings and all that apparatus that we think is essential. Why do you think uh, the city did fall in that way? Um, it acted like a capital in that it initially, they moved it which capitals do. I mean, we, we wouldn't think of moving Washington, although line a bunch of bulldozers push it in the Atlantic, but um, there are other, you know, in China, they're moving over history. Uh, they move capitals often, and Chaco did that. They, they, some political decision was made. It didn't have much to do with the environment because the environment was pretty good at that point. When we, had, we have pretty good information on that. It was raining, which is all that matters. They moved it north about 80 miles to a, another national park, called Aztec Ruins, which doesn't have anything to do with the Aztec, that's just the name that the local settlers gave it, and tried to keep Chaco going there, and that's when they hit a real bad 50-year drought, starting about 1120, I think, 1115. Um, and they persevered through that, but, but they, they couldn't pull it together the way Chaco had pulled it together, so, and then everything falls apart. Um, by about 1250, what's left of the Chaco political system goes away and tens of thousands of people leave that region. That's when everybody leaves Mesa Verde, everybody leaves the whole Four Corners, which is quite a, pretty unusual in human history. I mean, you have a lot of people leaving many regions, but not everybody. And, you know, for everybody, and by everybody, it's like 60,000 people to leave that region. Um, I don't know if it's unprecedented, but it's certainly unusual in human history. Um, and I think that's a political decision. I don't think that has to do with environment all that much. If things are going off the rails and there's violence, or there, before there wasn't. In Chaco's time, it was pretty peaceful, from all accounts. Um, and people just vote with their feet. I mean, whole villages get up and, and move. It's definitely different from uh, even somewhat uh, contemporary understandings of how societies work, and even talking about the last few centuries. It's very different than what we think, you know, how we think Pueblos work. I mean, you know, white people have a a carefully nurtured stereotype of how Pueblo societies work, which is near and dear to us, and they say sell it by the court in Santa Fe and Sedona and places like that. That has a basis in reality, but, but um, you know, it's all the Zen gardener stuff, uh, the, the happy, peaceful people living in harmony with their environment, which I'm sure Pueblo people are when they can be, uh, but Pueblo people are also demonstrably very practical. I mean, you know, they, they can go to war, and historically, they can go to war, they can do all, all the stuff that needs to be done. Uh, if they feel it needs to be done. Um, and, yeah, this notion of Pueblos that we project back on places like Chaco, I think very incorrectly, uh, basically it was cooked up by some white guys in Santa Fe in you know 19-teens, 1920s, um, to market Santa Fe, and it worked. I mean, you go to Santa Fe today, and it's a Pueblo theme park, very expensive Pueblo theme park. Um, and the Pueblo people aren't making any money off Well, the artists are, but, but uh, yeah, I mean, it worked. Um, and it's, it, it truly is part of the, the regional ethos at this point. I, mean, I make fun of flute music, but yeah, I mean, the, 
go into a store in Santa Fe and they'll sell you Pueblo pots and you can listen to flute music and they'll tell you all kinds of stuff about Pueblos that maybe is true some of the time. <laughs> but it's, it's a, an image crafted <clears throat> you know, by white people for white people and when you talk to Pueblo people about it, they just sort of roll their eyes and go, yeah, you know, we try to do that stuff, but you know, a lot of that stuff is made up by white people for white people. And the prob problem for an archaeologist is we do project that back in the past. And it makes it very difficult to see a place like Chaco for what it probably was. Right. Um, you've also been a museum curator for yeah. a large part of your career. Um, and how did you find it was different doing field work versus kind of being that more public, um, communicative face with, um, with Boulder and with other museums that you've worked with? Um, well, I've always had a, a public component to my work because uh, I noticed that the, when I was younger and not a college professor and then didn't even have a PhD, that college professors were not writing for the public. Um, there's a magazine called Archaeology Magazine, which is a glossy, you know, color thing. It's just like all magazines hitting, having a hard time now, but for many years that was pretty much the main outlet for normal people to read about it, you know, National Geographic and Archaeology Magazine. And I used to write stuff for Archaeology Magazine. In fact, I'm still a contributing editor at a time when, when the professors really looked down on that. You weren't supposed to write for the public. So, okay, fine, they're not doing it, I'll do it. For the Southwest, not for everything. But uh, um, the transition from field work where I was doing that kind of stuff, because a lot of the field work was for the Park Service, and the Park Service is really working for the people, with, you know, you're not working for tenure or something like that, or, or research kudos. Uh, from that to a straight, uh, museum curator wasn't that much of a shift. I mean, I still did field work, still did lots of field work. Um, but the, yeah, the public side, it, it was a different medium, if that makes sense. You know, you're doing exhibits rather than popular writing, but you're doing popular writing too. Right. Well, and I'm interested to uh, kind of understand too, uh, there's a lot of debate um, now, as has in many ways always been, about how to deal with public lands. I think of Bears Ears Monument yeah. um, and many others. Um, the current federal administration really kind of doesn't like the concept of um, preserving public lands or yeah. um, all of that. Um, what, what, do you, what do you think of the current climate? What would you hope to see um, in the future moving forward about um, understanding lands and culture and such like that? Um, the United States has been pretty good about preserving archaeology, especially considering that it's, it's sort of an us-them situation. It's not our archaeology, it's their archaeology, their history. Yeah, we, we preserve Mount Vernon too, right? And we preserve Gettysburg and places like that. We preserve our, our past, but we've been pretty good about trying to take care of places that we think are important, which are not always the same thing as what Native American people think are important. I mean, they think those are important, but there's other places that are important, and many many times it's uh, natural formations. You know, we go for the big things, buildings, things that we can recognize. It's like Mesa Verde or Chaco Canyon. Well, that looks like a building. Yeah, okay. But a butte or, or an area like Bears Ears, a whole area can be really important to some of the tribes. Um, previous administrations have been pretty reasonable about that. Uh, there's a thing that, uh, this is pre-Obama, I mean, there's a thing called traditional cultural properties where if a tribe says, look, you know, this this mountain's really important to us, we appreciate it if you don't level it or whatever. And they were able to put that on what's called the National Register of Historic Places, 
which, you know, a mountain, that was, National Register of Historic Places is the core of all our, the, our preservation. It was intended to be places like Mesa Verde, uh, excuse me, like uh, Mesa Verde and, and Mount Vernon. You know, to put a land uh, land form on it, took a little convincing, but they're good about doing that. Um, now, um, the current administration wants to roll that kind of thing back right across the board. Uh, I mean, they're not really fond of some of the like Western Republicans are not fond of public lands at all, uh, like the Utah delegation. They just like to you know privatize everything, um, and the archaeologists themselves don't ha have had less luck with preservation than the tribes. The tribes are a much more powerful voice politically. A bunch of you know professors and archaeologists. I mean, who, who's going to pay any attention to them? But when the tribes say this is really important. Well, at least, like in the Obama administration, they listened. Uh, right now, they're not. But hopefully, that'll turn around before too many bad things happen. Um, Bears Ears is the one that's probably the most famous, but it's not the only situation like that, where the tribes actually had some... The tribes have a fair amount of political power at this point, and they should. Um, they've had a certain amount of success preserving on a national level that stuff, and hopefully they will again. Can't be too soon. Right. Is there anything I haven't asked you about, or anything you'd like to add? Um. Yeah, the University of Colorado has a really long history of working in the Southwest. Um. <clears throat> actually, at the museum I work at, the Natural History Museum, which has a lovely student lounge called the Bio Lounge, where you can go get free coffee and tea. Um. That, that museum did a lot of work in Southwest, and a gentleman named Earl Morris, who got his BA here and his MA here at CU, and then the anthropology department picked it up. And over the years, I mean, the university had a field station at Mesa Verde and was you know, very much involved in, in Southwestern archaeology, and that's still going strong. I mean, uh, it's interesting because we get more Native American students in, in the anthropology department and more Native American participation with the stuff that we do at the, at the museum, and that's a good thing. That's a very good thing. Anyway, it's pretty strong at the university. Have you enjoyed your time here then, at least? At what the university? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I've done many, many different things here uh, at the university. When I came in, I was running a museum studies program. They hired me to run the museum studies program, which is fun. Um, it's a graduate program, and almost all those kids got jobs, <laughs> which, you know, unfortunately wasn't always the case in anthropology. You know? So I, I, I had 40 graduate students, and all but three of them, I think, were in museum studies, and almost all of them got jobs right out, right out the bat. Um, did a lot of field research uh, jointly with the anthropology department, and then on my own uh, did a bunch of synthetic stuff where the National Park Service kept throwing money at us to, you know, to do this big synthetic study of Chaco Canyon and more recently, a, a large study that I'm doing with a couple of colleagues um, back east on Chaco landscapes, um, because the area around Chaco uh, is being all leased for fracking. And uh, right now, going to Chaco, you, know, you go 20 miles over a dirt road, and you see some Navajo people live out there, but not much else. You know, it's really uh, open space, and, and not in the sense of the city of Boulder, but I mean, you know, it's broad horizons. Um, that's probably all going to change. That whole experience is going to change. They aren't going to drill and frack on Chaco itself. It's a national park. They're going to do that, but they really want to do it right up to the edges, and it'll just change the whole ambiance and you know help some of the Navajo people out with money, 
but it'll certainly change their environment and their drinking water and all the rest of it. So there's, there's I, I'm sure I know that there's mixed feelings among the Navajos about this because it's bringing in revenue which they need, uh, but uh, the trade-off is you know environmental stuff which they don't need. They don't want the bad stuff anymore. That's a convoluted answer to your question. <laughs> It's fair though. It's a convoluted situation. Yeah. And so you're you're retiring, right? Yeah. What what do you have plans? Are you gonna go uh, go back to Pompeii potentially? No, no. Um, I think I've written my last book on on uh, southwestern archaeology. I seem to drop a big one every ten years or so, and uh, it's been ten years since the last one. Um, so I don't really want to write long, you know, do extended research in the southwest any anymore. I mean, field work, if you go out and excavate, then you have 10 years of stuff down downstream where you have to analyze it and take, you know, do something with it. You don't have to go out and dig to dig and try to learn something. And so there's a time commitment. Um, I might start writing more uh, public stuff, um, again, because not too many other people do that. More people are doing it now than when I first got in the field, but not too many people are doing that. So I like writing and, you know, just find a different audience. Well, congratulations on retiring, and thank you so much for joining us. Thanks. Thank you.